0: There are a million ways to make money in the food service industry. You just have to find one. On the Titans of Food Service podcast, I interview real life movers and shakers in the food game who cut through all the noise to get to the top. My name is Nick Portillo, and welcome to the Titans of Food Service podcast. Let's jump right into it. Welcome everyone to the Titans of Food Service podcast. We are on episode number two. Today, I have an amazing guest. He has been a mentor to me and just his viewpoints and strategies and way he's been able to be successful in the food service industry has been incredible. Let's get started. Again, Thaddeus, thanks for coming on here today. I'm, I'm really excited that we get to chat and learn more about yourself and what has made you successful. I've always been very impressed, and as you know, I've I've viewed you as as a mentor of mine. And I, w- what I've been impressed about is, one, at such an, a young age, you've been able to accomplish so many different things. And uh, just the way you look at the food service industry and the companies within it and, and how you can make your mark, it's truly profound and and I, and I think it's a, what people aspire to be, but not a lot of people may be achieving right now. But today I wanted to just ask you questions and learn everything that I can about yourself and and what makes you successful, and, and hopefully others can take nuggets away from that. So starting off, uh, I know that you have a chemical engineering degree from the University of Minnesota. So tell me, how does a chemical engineer get into food service? <laughs> Wait, how long do we have on this podcast?
1: No, that's always. But first of all, thanks for the kind words. Um, you know, <laughs> of I've, been, I've really enjoyed working with you over the past, what now, almost 10 years or being around? I think it's something like yeah. 10 years, like that. Um, yeah. And, um, but but I've really enjoyed watching your career develop and uh, and uh, you God. obviously have a lot of passion for what you do, a lot of energy. And like I asked you just before we started, how do you, when do you find time to sleep? But, um, <laughs> but I'm, happy to be, I'm happy to be on the podcast. It's the first video podcast I've done. So I was expecting you to send hair and makeup. I had to do it myself. So hopefully that'll I'll
0: be that'll there. be for the part two.
1: Okay, um, so, <laughs> so getting back to your question, chemical engineer. It's kind of a long story, but I'll keep it kind of brief. I was able to, I was able to kind of spin my chemical engineering background into into kind of a non traditional career. Okay, but uh, basically. Uh, When I was a sophomore in college, I had a good, and this is kind of like the theme of my life, is I've always had somebody around me that kind of gives me a nudge in the right direction or steers me in the right direction. And so that was a good friend of mine in in college who was heading up the career fair at the University of Minnesota, Fletcher Wanless, one of my best friends. And he's like, my freshman year, he's like, you need to come to the career fair. And I'm like, what for? Right? Mm -hmm. Well, I ran into this booth and it was this company called Procter & Gamble. And I was like, who's this? Right? I didn't know who they were. And I was looking at all the products on the table and I'm like, huh, Tide. Soldiers, bounty, big brands. Stuff I'm pretty familiar with. I was like, maybe we should talk to these people. So they were like, who's this kid? You know, I was like 18 years old. And so fortunately, I have the gift of gab from my father. I used to sit and play Nintendo next to his office, and he's in financials and sales and things. And so I think I absorbed some of that. But Mm -hmm. uh, long story short, I ended up meeting a guy by the name of John Pacheco, cheeks as I call him. And um, he was the head recruiter. Told him I'd be back next year. And sophomore year, I ended up getting an internship with Procter and Gamble. Okay. And it was on the engineering side. I actually worked on a product called Alestra, or you might know it as a Lean, if you've ever heard of Wow Chips. The I'm not fat. familiar I'm with too, that. Well, you're too young to know what Wow Chips oh, yeah, are. But true. basically, it was a it was a it was a <laughs> an oil that you could fry like things in, but your body wouldn't absorb it, so there was no fat. Um, so anyway, worked at Procter and Gamble there came back a second summer as an intern and then was offered a full-time position in product development for Folgers. And I, th- I think they kind of didn't know what to do with me because I wasn't really a traditional engineer. I was a little outgoing. Back then I had my like boy band hair. It was like all spiky and blonde and stuff <laughs> like that. Um, it, was, it was not the conservative look you see today. But I think what they saw was that I was, I was really creative. I could see things differently. And so they kind of threw me in skunkworks projects. Um, I ended up on a project that was a self-heating beverage container. And it it ended up doing really well in all of our concept testing, our use testing, and things like that. And at the end of the day, Procter & Gamble decided not to launch it. They went down the path of the Keurig single pod cup brewing and everything else. So I left to to move forward with the team that uh, basically raised venture capital to launch this product on their own, which is how I ended up in, in Southern California. It was a company called OnTech. And I mean, I was basically thrust into a business development role that I had no business doing as far as selling is concerned, sure. but just started reaching out, cold calling and things like that. And ended up meeting some people working on the retail side of the business. That product was was really well received by the U.S. military and places like Walmart and whatnot. And um, But we decided to part ways. And uh, at the time, my mentor, Rick Bauman... Uh, who was actually brought into the company to really run sales, he left and went to another company called Kim and Scott's Gourmet Pretzels. And that's really where I got my first food service start. He basically called me and was like, hey, we need somebody that can just do top-to-top sales. You know, meeting with big companies, you know, uh, with Starbucks. And at the time, um, Barnes & Noble Cafes, which was was like a top 100 restaurant company back in the day, right? And so I came in and... I didn't know anything about food service brokers, like what you do. Um, mm-hmm. I really didn't know much about distribution at that time. I didn't know anything, but I knew that I could really connect with people. And it was also my first venture into the Better For You space okay. because Kim and Scott's was a gourmet, all-natural product. And back then, that was something that was relatively new. So, so we were competing with the likes of J&J Snack Foods with their, you know, super pretzel and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but they had built a really solid brand around um they, they went direct to consumer on qvc sure uh, they were doing really well in retail <clears throat> so we could play that brand into the food service realm and so i just started going out and figuring out how to do it i met some people that i would consider my mentors in food service like mark eden um yeah. from ksa eden and thai over on the yeah. east coast and he, he looked at me and was like you know this is this this guy's got you know the right attitude he knows he, he thinks he knows what he's doing and let's let's work with him and try to really make this work so he right. really taught me a lot more about the brokerage business and a lot more about distribution models and how challenging that is and then i called a company called dot foods yeah i never i didn't know what they did back then a lot of people didn't know what they did either yeah i and, know they've come a um, long way yeah so so that's how i ended up in in the food service world kind of long story short but okay. um it was it was a weird path but um heck, I didn't want to be much of an engineer. I didn't want to be, I think, I think in college, one of my professors said that, you know, don't go work in the oil industry because partial credit blows up the plant. And that's basically what I was the king of was partial credit on my exams. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> So you, you talk a lot about mentors, Mark Eden and and Rick Bauman. How do you find mentors and when you do find mentors what is it maybe questions that you ask them or do you meet with them on a consistent basis or how does that relationship look
1: um it's a great question and i'm not really sure i have an answer specifically for me i think it's just kind of for me it's it's first looking at the person and seeing what they've done in their career Sure. And then getting to know them and having more of a personal connection. Uh, and I think it's important to have that personal connection because if you don't get along with the person, how are they going to be your mentor, right? So you can respect the heck of out of somebody and they can have the most impressive career ever. But if you can't talk to them, so what? Like. So um, Rick and I were very close for a long time and, and Mark and I still talk to this day. Um, and I've, over the years, I've just you know kind of come across people that I consider being mentor. I don't. I don't think I ever really call them out as like you're my sure. mentor. It's sure. not like a formalized relationship, but it's somebody you can call or discuss things with, or whatever it is, or just just chat. You know, when you're frustrated or whatever, and they can give you right. guidance.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. I think mentors are so important, um, and I almost—I I like to call it like a life hack. You know, I, I've gone through food service myself for seven or eight years and kind of uh, really grinding it out. But when I meet people like yourself or other people that have, you know the movers and shakers out there, and I learn from them, I feel that my my uh, you know the learning gap starts to close a lot, which is nice, and it makes it very helpful in trying to be successful and achieve my goals and especially i feel like in food service uh, at 29 right now i started when i was 22 and every room that i'm always in i'm i'm always the youngest person and you so if i can <laughs> right so if i can surround myself with others that are that have been there mm-hmm. and and done that of what i want to accomplish i feel like it really helps me out uh, tremendously yeah. Yeah, and I
1: think, you know, well, you also had a leg up. You had somebody by the name of John Portillo. Yes. That had a little bit of a little bit of guidance. But, I mean, I remember when you first started in the industry as well, because I think at Amazon we were one of your first brands. Um, Correct. And then you were kind of thrust into the leadership role. And so, yeah. you know, um, but you and I always had some great conversations. I remember I would stop by whatever random office. You were like working in like a shared office space or whatever, but that's right. You know, tech space. Yeah. Tech space. Yeah. So, but I would come yeah. up or whatever and we would talk, you talk on the phone, but we, we talked more than just the product that we were working on. We talked more about food service and strategy and things like that.
0: Totally. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I know in in as your career has gone on in 2010, you joined Gardein as their director of food service sales. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah.
1: So um, I was working at Kim and Scott's and again, Rick had left there and gone to Gardein and he reached out to me again, kind of in a similar situation and was like, hey, you know, I've got this new product that I think you'd really do well with. And, and he sent me like a screenshot or something and I was like, yo, I am not selling fake meat. Like there's no way possible that I'm... <laughs> because you have to remember, I remember back then there was no category. It was Morningstar, um, Linda, like, Loma, yeah. like there was a couple of them, but the things that have been around, but nothing like this, where it was actually designed to look and sure. taste like a piece of chicken. And I actually went out and bought some of it and called them. And I was like, yep, I'm on board. Uh, because the product was really good. Right. And that's one of the things I think that has helped me be really successful in my career is... Being fortunate enough to identify and recognize great products at the right time. Eve Potvin at Gardeen used to say, you know, we're riding a wave and, you know, you surf too. So it's like, if you're too far out in front of the wave, the wave breaks on your head. If you're too far behind, you miss it. If you're right where you need to be, you ride it down the line and you ride it as long as you can. And so I've been fortunate to come up to be exposed to products like that. Yeah. So I, I interviewed with Gardein. It was a very interesting interview back then too. So I, would, I really started to feel like I knew a lot more about food service. And one of the things you run into in food service, especially when you work with companies, most companies that are retail focused, is that mm-hmm. they have no idea what we do. And right. the biggest watch out for me is, okay, they don't have any idea what we do. Will they listen if you tell them what you do? And then will they let you go do it? Without trying to give right. you guys, because how can they guide you to, how to do something that they don't know what it is? So I specifically remember interviewing with the uh, with the recruiter at the time, and they were like, "I basically had to explain what I what the industry was first, and then explain why I was a good fit for them within the industry." And it was very frustrating because I couldn't like. They were like beating me up over something they had no idea what they were talking about. I managed to get through that process, but um,
0: are you saying that you were educating Garden or the recruiter, at the, the recruiter. The service, at the time? It was the recruiter at ah, the time. It was okay.
1: By the time I, you know, that was just it was kind of a formality because I, I knew somebody there and whatnot. But but then going into Gardein, it, you know, it really they opened their eyes and they were willing to to really look at you know the right way of doing things and and, and whatnot. So, right. but, but it still happens, right? You still end up inside a, an organization that's really focused on retail because that's what builds the brand initially or can build the brand initially. And so oh, you course. kind of become the tail of the dog, right? That's just like, you know, flapping in the breeze in yep. the back end. Um, so, um, but it was, you know, it was, it, it, it was meant to be, it was a very challenging role because we not only... Had this amazing product, but the category didn't really exist. Nobody knew what it was, and so trying to break into that was was pretty pretty
0: challenging. I bet. So you mentioned that you said you you you're, you have the ability to identify great products at the right time. That's very profound. How is there a, a method, or is there tricks, or? Is there any what do you look for when interviewing for a company it, 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 in terms of how do you know if it's a great product and it's the right time? Sure.
1: With Gardein, it was well, even with Kim and Scotts or with Gardein and then Samazon, it's like you kind of you have to be in tune with what's going on in the world, in the food world in particular, right. the world in general, then and then in the food world. And for me, looking at a product like Gardein and seeing like just the quality and the like food has to taste good. And so I tried it. And I'm like, this sure. is amazing. I see the food system changing. At that point, people were starting to talk about veganism. Plant plant based didn't even exist back then. Nobody called it that, and it was weird because it was like either you were a right. vegan, a vegetarian, or you had some kind of stupid label on you that like labeled you as like an outsider, I read as opposed up. to just a person that liked to eat yeah. plants, right? Um, but I identify. I just looked at the space and I looked at what. What was going on, and I'm like, "Yeah, this makes sense." So for for Gardein, it was sure. we know that there's a problem in the world with with too much meat consumption, whether it be health wise, whether it be planet impacts, or whether yep. people just really are, are against the the eating and treat, treat, treatment of animals, ethical treatment of animals and whatnot. So that was like it was, and then finding a great product alongside that, because for me, it's the product's always still got to be great. Uh, In fact, I I, I really struggled to understand in this industry how some people sell products that they sell. Now, I understand they've got a family, so they have to, like, you got to work, right? So I get that. I respect the hell out of that. I'm not criticizing anybody about that. You want to go sell French fries for a living? Go sell millions of pounds. Go for it, right? It's not me. I I couldn't do it. I really couldn't do it. I couldn't get out of bed. So I found an exciting product, good company. That's the thing, too, is so now you've got a product that you love. You've mm-hmm. got you know, and an industry that needs it and you know you can be successful. I also like a challenge like, hey, oh, let's yes. go sell the first plant-based chicken out there to a world that knows uh, no idea what it is. Sweet, that sounds like fun, sign me up. Uh, <laughs> and then the last part is really, and this is what I've really moved forward with my career is is the team and the people that you work with because if you don't have a good team around you, or people that support you, or whatnot, it can be very difficult to do that. So if you put those components together, and it, it can be hard to recognize, but today are you know, where I'm sitting now with my mochi, or even where I was with Sambazon, it's like when I'm interviewing people to work with me on my team. And notice I never say it mm-hmm. for me because I think that's crap. I don't work for anybody, right? I work of for course. myself. You know, <laughs> um, I love working with a team, but it's like it's it's okay, cool. I, I looked at your resume. You've got the requisite skill set. You've got the mm-hmm. energy, but let's have a conversation about whether or not you're going to fit into the team. Because the old adage is that one, one, one bad apple spoils a bunch, right? And so so I've, I've really worked hard at making sure that the team is cohesive, regardless of the skill set. Because let's face it, in food service, the people are out there. Now, it might be challenging to find the right people, but you've got to find the right people that can work together as a team. So product, environment, um, challenge, and ultimately working in a good team are probably the top four things that I look for.
0: And then you mentioned Sambazon. So Sambazon is a very uh, unique brand. And living in Southern California, it's, uh, I mean, we see it all over the place. The the acai craze, and I know they were really the pioneers of bringing the acai berry from Brazil here to the United States. What were some of the lessons that you learned from your time at Sambazon? um,
1: I think... Uh, you know, like anybody, you want to be a little bit ahead of your time. And so, when I joined that organization, first of all, sure. it was a funny conversation again with the recruiter because they were the recruiter was trying to get me to work for some supplement company in Chicago, and I was like, and I knew I knew the recruiter that I was talking to, and I was like, what are you talking? Like, how does this sound like me and like anything I would want to touch based on my career? And he goes well, you're a surfer, right? I go, yeah. He goes, what do you know about Sambazon? I go, the acai <laughs> company? I go, that stuff's crap. It's yeah. loaded with sugar, right? And he's like, yeah. well, maybe you should go talk yeah. to them, right? And so I didn't know anything about it. Again, like I kind of just stumbled into it. I never really, I knew it was everywhere. I knew how to pronounce it, unlike a lot of people, uh, which was nice.
0: Sure, yeah, uh, yes. <laughs> um,
1: But I again, I went and, um, you know, Gardena just sold to Pinnacle Foods. I did not want to work for a large corporation like that at all, um, and it's nothing right. against them. It's just not not my cup of tea. Um, so I had the opportunity to meet with uh, with Ryan Black, a CEO at Amazon, and Travis, and mm-hmm. some great people over there. And again, it was like I looked at where I'd taken Gardine College and University, the non commercial space, and I'm like, man, this is a layup because the students are going to love this story, which is a great story, right. um, you know, protecting the rainforest, protecting the Amazon, and providing fair wages, taking a product that they would normally just consume and having it such that these people now can utilize it to, you know, stay on their, on their native land. They don't have to sell it to agribusiness and things like that. I'm like, this is awesome. Like I'm, I get to go save the planet. Holy crap. And the product's really good. And, I was, re- I was educated about the product and sugar and all that. And so it changed my mind. <laughs> it actually is really good for you. <laughs> and stuff like that. So, um, but, but yeah, so it was, uh, so that was the first part of it was just like getting in the door and seeing it. And then I think probably the worst thing that I did was I, I wanted to be ahead of where I was, meaning like, okay. I got hired as a vice president and, you know, for all intents and purposes, I really didn't have the right experience to be a vice president at that point,
0: which I really? thought I did. But obviously, I didn't. you know when, I mean, in working with you, I thought you did a fantastic. Job. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but still, there's
1: there's the sales component of it, and then there's the the business management and things like that, which I didn't have the I didn't have the experience in. And so that was probably a big watch out. But I also spoke up a lot. And when we mm-hmm. first when I first started there, I think you probably remember there were some other people working. and the the yeah. company was had done a great job. Building bowl shops and smoothie shops across the country, they were facing some challenges from competition that was undercutting them on price. Sure. We had a machine that we wanted to get out there and make bowls on demand, and mm-hmm. but they weren't speak. We weren't speaking the same language. So I'm talking about non-commercial. I'm talking about college and university going to things like NACUFs, right? Going to NRA, yeah. and I and I think I don't remember if it was at Gardine or if it was at Sambazon, and somebody was like, "We're not doing NRA. Nothing happens there." And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, right. how are you in the food business selling to food service customers you don't go to the national restaurant show? And so for people who aren't in the right. food industry, NRA is not the other, the other NRA. This is the National Restaurant Association. Um, but, but yeah, so I mean I remember when you went to your first one, right? Or at least when you when you came there, right? uh, yeah. Yeah, it's but it's 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 where you go to see what's going on with trends and connect with people and things like that. And so you've got to it was making it relevant. And what I told the people at Sam Design at the time was like, "Look, I'm here to make you and turn you into a professional food service organization, as opposed to mm-hmm. a couple of people out on the street doing deals with like individual distributors, giving them exclusivity. Like exclusivity is a four letter word in my world, right? I want to sell to right. as many points of distribution as possible. Give the operator access to the product anywhere they want to buy it from. Um, and so, sure. really started sure, speaking that language and um, and building out a team." That could then go go facilitate that and then and, and move forward.
0: And, and it seems like from your time at Gardine to your time at Sambazon, you know, you really went from I don't want to say zero, but it, it, it was maybe minimal sales and just exploded it out. I know at Sambazon you went from what five or so, a handful of distributors, up to almost 400 different points of distribution. Mm-hmm. You know, in food service, what we see on the broker side is that, you know, kind of pioneering is what we call it, kind of taking a brand from zero to hero. It's the most expensive, it, it takes the most amount of time, it's very difficult, and if you don't have the right pieces in, in, in play, it's almost impossible to get it off the ground. That distribution point really is a sticking point in food service because you have to have relationships there, they have to stock the product and uh, so on and so forth. So you say that you, you you really zoned in on those college and universities and non-commercial accounts. Did you feel like those were kind of the, the drivers into distribution, or why did you focus on those two segments specifically? Sure. I
1: mean, 100% focusing on college and universities. It's the product fits. We know that the, for, for especially for well, for Guardian or for Sambazon or even at Mymochi, right? The product fits, right? right? The, the students they're looking for these products. Um, right. from the From the Samazon standpoint, they're looking for something that's sustainable. They want they want vision into where their food comes from. Students are a lot smarter. Sure. Well, your generation is a lot smarter than my generation <laughs> and probably the
0: one before it. You don't have any gray in your hair or in your beard yet. Can you even grow a beard yet? None. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I can get some, uh, some peach fuzz going here. Uh, but
1: seriously, it's uh, you know the right product for the right space. But sure. it's also, and you know this from, from your work that you do, you need that Anchor account to drive distribution. And right. that's really been my model. And I don't think it's anything unique to me. But uh, right. I really focused on it over my career and really focused on, let's get a couple Anchor accounts that drive distribution, and then let's go exploit that distribution. So, say you're working with a broadliner; they have the contract with USC, so US Foods, right? So they have USC. So now right. I'm selling to USC; they're selling enough product to keep the lights on for us. <laughs> you know, through that distributor, the distributor's happy. Okay, let's go talk to the distributor about who else we can sell to. Let's go. Right. Let's go implement a marketing program, and that's kind of the process you go through, and over and over and over again, um, which is fine when you're close to where your your manufacturing and distribution point is gets to be more of a challenge when you're trying to, to go across the country. And that's where, as we mentioned earlier, Dot Foods comes in or Redistributor. Dot's the big the big dog in town. So sure. it can be a bit of a challenge with them because it's a it's a circular thing, which is chicken or the egg. You're not big enough for Dot to pick up because they wanted, I don't know, a truckload a month or something like that. So they won't work of with you. But in order for you to get big enough, you need to work with them. Uh, so and, I, and that's changed a lot with them as well. They've, they've really, I mean, their business has exploded because um, they're, they're pretty much the only game in town. But um, but yeah, so focusing on those those large volume customers that can really drive volume force distribution on a regional level. And then if you can show it regionally, you just repeat it, you know? So if we did it in Southern California, let's go do it in Cal, let's go to Pacific Northwest. And, there's the, and then once I was able to, or my team was able to drive that in force distribution, let's go hire a broker now that can go exploit it. And to your point, pioneering, I never really want my broker to pioneer because I should be doing that. Right? It should be me and my team owning the brand, going out, and then otherwise you're just going to spin your wheels. You don't want to you don't have time to go to the to go to the mm-hmm. operator, go to the distributor, back to the operator, back to the distributor, you know, all this back and forth. Instead, what you and your team need to be able to do is say, "Okay, sure. here's the six distributors you're stocked at. It's open coded. We know our customers in the area where we think this is going to fit. Let's go." And that's really the way to do it. I I can't tell you how many people I've come across that ask me for advice on brokers and who do you hire? And all I do, I just ask them, like, do you have any distribution? They're like, no. I'm like, don't hire a broker. You're just going to, you're going to feel like that they don't do anything and you're going to be upset about it and you're not going to get anywhere. And that's just, that's just happens too many times. So it's like, you got to at least break into a market before you bring somebody on.
0: When you started with these brands, it's kind of, you get it up to some sort of, uh, initial level, and then you fill out your broker team. Do you start with direct reps first, or do you do it yourself, or, or how does that, or, or do you do brokers first? Sometimes, I mean, is there is there a formula that works for you, or uh, you know, what are the metrics that you look at in terms of growing companies?
1: Yeah, I think for me, the formula that has worked has been been doing what we're talking about, which is going out, driving some big. Big distribution, partnering with, with a company like, you know, partnering with somebody on, on that, that can really force a distribution. I prefer to bring in direct sales force initially. Okay. You can't, I, I don't think, yeah, I think you've got to be careful. I don't think you can, I don't think that people are always just the answer. More people, more people, more people. It's mm-hmm. still an overall strategy. And so up until my mochi, which is, you know, where I'm at now, I would say with pro- products that are back of the house that I've worked with, um, ingredient products, that that model seems to work pretty well. Sure. You know, bring, bring, get some, get some initial sales, get some initial distribution, hire some direct people. And then once you have them settled in, then they can work with the broker and whatnot. I mean, the other thing is, is if there's, I think when, when I was at Guardian, we had, I had 14 different brokers that I called on in my, in my region. Wow. Right. And that's just, I mean, there's not enough weeks in a quarter to go see them. And the same thing with my counterpart, and we were like, you know, then then the great broker consolidation happened, and it kind of helped things out a little bit. But um, my right. point there is that you you can't have like one rep trying to rep the whole country or one rep, and I see this over and over again, and it's like, man, if you yeah. if and this is this goes back to people not understanding the industry, you can't do it. You can't be like one person trying to manage a business across the country. You'll you'll kill yourself. It's a lot to it's ask. Just way too yeah. much. So yeah. um, that being said, moving into my Mochi, which is a front of, more of a front of the house brand, a retail brand. I mean, for all intents. Yeah. if it's a retail food service product. My whole philosophy changed a little bit, and so sure. you know, and it's this is where I think that having an engineering or a scientific background comes into play. Mm-hmm. It's being able to look at all the moving parts. on the the chessboard or whatever you want to say, and being able to react to change, being able to quickly move forward in different directions, read the data and move forward, and then reassess and go forward again. You know, if you have to take a step back, you can. And so I started with my mochi and started kind of down that path. And I was like, this is not working. (laughs) Like within the month, I was like, broadliners, you know, everybody's messed up from the pandemic, Mm -hmm. you know? and, And so we took a little bit of different approach where we... Decided to invest and partner with uh, with Compass Food Buy and Chartwells, which is okay. which is something totally different. So now you're partnering with a large, uh, you know, contract management company, and specifically in the segment mm-hmm. that you want to target. And we used that to really move distribution forward on a national scale, but through a distributor I'd never worked with through Vistar. Which is a venue, right. so I had to learn that side of the business. Still learning it, you know, but good people over there that have been mentoring me. But working with Andrew Green at, at, at Chartwells, you know, just being a champion of the sure. product. And I think the the way we've done it with My Mochi, which is different than what I've done previously or my teams have done previously, other companies is that My Mochi decided to forward invest, and and I think that's something you know I think is is interesting in that a lot of companies that are in retail will say they want to get into food service. So they want to hire one person, maybe kind of try it out and see what happens. And I'm like, yeah, not interested. Right. It's like, if you're not going to spend the money to go into it and be serious about it, it's going to be a tremendous waste of time. And so we invested in this business heavily. um, And and that's why we've been able to be so successful so quickly.
0: You know, looking at your past experience and now my Mochi, what... Is the support level that MyMochi gives you maybe that is unique to others? Uh, yeah, I know you're mentioning kind of the maybe the forward investing, but uh, can you maybe go a little bit deeper into that and what that looks like?
1: Yeah, I think we're in a unique situation with MyMochi in that uh, we have a they, they really they siloed their business, so they they started out in retail with a great brand and just blew up. I mean, if you guys aren't familiar, I'm like, have you not been in a grocery store in the last five years? I mean, it's (laughs) everywhere. Where do you live under a rock? I mean, come on. So, but they really hit the market, but they invested heavily. They invested in freezers. They had the mochi bars. And so they came on the scene and they were like, I always say like, when I started with my mochi, it's going to be one day, my mochi doesn't, doesn't exist in food service. The next day we're going to be freaking everywhere. And it's happening. So, they did that on the retail side. Then they went to the mass, right? So Target, Walmart. And at one point, and I don't know if I can be quoted on this, but at one point during some time frame at Target, we were the number one selling frozen novelty, which is huge. Because I believe it. You're competing against, look at some of the brands you're competing against. Uh, Nestle, yeah. right? Which by the way, is a funny, funny anecdote. When you talk about the big older brands, mm-hmm. uh, somebody was talking to me the other day and they're, their daughter who's in college now, but at the time when, when they, they saw this product, they were like, dad, what's Nestle? Right. Right. Like kids don't know what Nestle is anymore. Yeah. Right? it doesn't exist. Isn't that it's, something? So they, right. I bet you they know what my mochi is. So they did a great job of building that brand. And then when I started, sure. um, we had Trey who's um, Trey Whaley, who was our, was there before yep. me. I know Trey. Yep. And Trey's, Trey's fantastic. And he actually knows the, the vending side of the business better than I do. So we we became a really good strong partnership there uh, strategically, and then with his execution and his his people that he knows. And then after we started kind of getting a little bit of success, Sandra and Craig came to me and they're like, "Yo, we, what can we do to move faster?" And I was like, "I think I, you know I need to hire a couple people," and that's what we ended up doing. So we ended up hiring Brandon and Will. Sorry to Amazon because they came over from there, but um, but it was time for them to make <laughs> a move. Uh, and um, but again, that that teamwork, right? You know your team, and I knew they would all work together. Now I've got uh, you know one of the best teams out there again with with Trey Brandon and and, and uh, Will, and we're actually bringing a new person on um, in a couple of weeks. But that's fantastic. But but just that, like we had zero. Like, for all intents and purposes, after the first two months, we still had like zero sales, and so now they right. hired me. They brought in Brandon. They brought in Will. They invested in a partnership with Chartwells, so they're they and and not not too much of that. We have to we have freezers, right? We have merchandising, so sure. we have you know a thousand freezers that we can we can use this year. I mean that's a that's a lot of money, right? So they're investing in the business is- to 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 play it forward. And I think that was a little bit different than where I've been in the past, where they've really been so focused on retail that they know they need food service, but they're not really sure what right. right, they want to invest in it, and they they have a different. They have different investors, you know, venture capital investors that are looking to cash out quickly. Food service can be a little bit longer, slow burn, especially to become profitable when you're when you're forward spending. So, I don't know that either philosophy is right or wrong. Um, I think sure. we're getting there a lot faster with My Mochi, but I also think I had the benefit of five more years' experience that I didn't have with Amazon, right, to show how we could do it. So, you know, I can move forward faster now, and, and my network has grown, and all those sorts of things, and so.
0: Totally. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, you went from the back of the house world to the front of the house. What are some of the uniqueness about the front of the house? And what are the, some of the challenges and the learnings that you've had from now going into that uh, part of the operation?
1: You should ask um, You should ask Brandon and Will that question. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was fortunate enough to work on the retail side a little bit, at least when I was with Folgers and then um, actually at OnTech as well. So I understand enough of the retail business to be dangerous. Right. And I did some convenience store work as well. So basically we're working inside a retail environment but within food service. So the language is different. Okay. How do you pro- how do you project volume and its units per per week pretty you now things like that but it's just it's just a little bit different. The distribution okay. model can be a little bit different. Sure. Um, using, you know, we, we have a DSD network across the country for My Mochi that really delivers into C stores and whatnot, and they overlap a little bit with college and university. I thought we should focus on broadline. That wasn't exactly the case to start out. So we parted, you know, Vistar was was really the way we started going. So it's just a different environment. And then for brokers, like for your team, are they do they know those people inside what right. you're trying to do? So do they know? the persons that's running the C stores on campus, or do they know the chef that's running culinary or whatever it is? It's so what are the relationships there? So fortunately for me, yeah, fortunately for me with a lot of the colleges and I'll talk a lot about colleges. Cause that's where I spend a lot of time, but I know enough of the people at the top levels to say, Hey, who do I talk to on the retail side? Or how do we partner mm-hmm. here to, to make this successful? Now that's not to say we're not doing things from a back of the house standpoint. It's just not as big a focus. Uh, me and Trey and, uh, Brandon, we're just at Michigan State with uh, with Chef Kurt Kwiatkowski. Yep, I can pronounce that. And great, I've known for a long time. But Kurt um, brought us in, and we were at the club level of their football stadium for homecoming, and we had plated up my mochi desserts, as opposed to just single sample. So we, we're still doing okay. stuff like that. Um, but it is it is a lot. It is a lot different. So it's basically more about just ch- turns and transactions, and then. A whole other space is working with uh, with hotels. So we're in Homewood Suites by Hilton, and the velocity that you see there—it's it, not you don't—it's not very fast moving, but just the scale of it. You're in 380 of them, or if you can get into a thousand Marriotts, right? It's like, oh, you may only sell two mochi balls a day per flavor, sure. but over a thousand units, that's a real lot. Versus at Sambazon, we were selling. 25 tubs of acai a day out of one location right with a hundred dollar ring on that on that tub so that's just it's just totally different so now i find us going after a lot more a lot larger opportunities for yeah so for scale so going after those those multi-unit places on the non-commercial side that can still move a lot of volume
0: you mentioned that you brought over Will and Brandon from your previous life at Sambazon when you're looking at talent, you know there's there's a difference between someone who can, you know, go into a kitchen and work with a chef, maybe it's a mom and pop operation, one to three units, but you're you're talking about going after Homewood Suites at has 380 locations. I mean, that is a whale. When you when you profile your team, do they have to have the ability to speak or be comfortable with those types of, you know, large accounts or is it something that you teach? How does that usually work? I'd say, I mean, in this specific instance, I I have all the confidence
1: in the world that these guys can do that. Yes. But I'm probably going to be in the room to start out. You know what I mean? And so, and and (laughs) I think I was having this conversation with Will the other day, because I I tend to take over, and it's a a bad habit that I have. When I I go into a meeting with one of the, the regional directors... I don't, let's face it, I don't get to sell a lot anymore. I get to, I sit behind the computer and do strategy oh. and spreadsheets and stuff like that. And so when I get out of that selling environment, I'm like super excited, like Tommy Boy, right? <laughs> like, instead, right. so I'm <laughs> going to go sell brake pads. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but I, so I tend to take over a little bit. But, um, but Will, Will and I were talking about it the other day, and he, he mentioned something where it was like, yeah, but I get to see how you do it. And, and, and it also, tells the people in the room that you trust me enough Mm to bring me into the conversation. And I think that's important too. So, um, you know, there, there are certain things. And and after we do calls like that or or whatnot, I, I, I'll always say, Hey, you know, let's talk a little bit about opportunities during that call, things you could have done a little bit differently, things you did well. I think you still need to coach. Um, I think, I think people forget about that a lot, especially with, with younger talent and sales. It's like, like, I, I still need coaching every once in a while, so I critique myself most of the time. Like, I could have done this better after the call. I'm kind of like, you know, I should have right. done this, should have done that. Shower thoughts, right? Of course. Like, after somebody cuts you off and you're driving down the street, you're like, I wish I would have said this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I think, yeah, so I, I knew that they could handle that. and But it's just giving them the opportunity as well, right? It's like, I never, I never liked it when I was at a company and they didn't trust that I could do that. Right. Right. And so they just wouldn't bring me. Oh no, we're going to close the door now, and you can go over there. And I'm like, oh, but I brought the deal here, you know. And right. what that really is is about empowerment. And so what I try to do with my team is empower them in those meetings to make the decision. So I've got to get the sign off from the top down that says, hey, you guys got to trust us enough that we're going to have to make some decisions on the fly. Give us some confines within yeah. the financial world that that makes sense that we can do that. Yeah. Trust us right? That word trust is big, trust us to make the right choice in that meeting. And I I trust all three of these guys to do that all the time.
0: Sure. Yeah, I think that's, you know, as leadership, when you bring in an A player or a high performing individual, they have to have the latitude to make decisions. And you're right, have that trust and uh, belief that they're going to get the job done. I think a lot of times if you squeeze those A players or micromanage them or whatever it may, or don't give them tools to be successful in the support, you know, they may end up leaving or, you know, finding other opportunities elsewhere.
1: Yeah, they get frustrated. I, I always say, don't hire smart people and then tell them what to do.
0: I like that. That is a great quote. Right. When you look at My mochi today, where are you at and and you, what are the next levels uh, on the food service side for My mochi? Um, Well, we're
1: going like a thousand miles per hour right now. It's like we've been
0: I feel like I've been
1: here for like four years already and I've only been here since March. And again, it's because right. we've had the support that, I mean, I, I did a podcast uh, a couple, like a month ago. And on the podcast, I talked about how we were in 120 colleges. Well, by the time the podcast came out, like three weeks later, we were in like 200 colleges. So it was like, you know, that's the speed we're moving at. And so so we're expanding quickly. And that doesn't always necessarily mean people. Mm-hmm. Right now for us, I think we, we need to build out some more infrastructure around around sales around marketing around internal support just having systems in place. I'm not huge on ha- being like overly system driven but you do need some mm-hmm. basics there and so we're going to expand on that. I saw that really within the non-commercial space and working with these uh, with these GPOs or these contract management companies I could I could spend the time myself and going and really getting in deep whatnot instead I, I found somebody who's an a player as you mentioned and that person starts mm-hmm. in a week. So it's like there, my my again, Sandra and Craig, my uh, my CSO, my CEO, were like, hey, what do you think we should do? Like, let's sit down. After literally within like three or four months, they're like, hey, we met with the board. What can we do to move this faster? Do you need more people? I'm like, maybe, like yeah. you know, I don't think we need ten people across the country selling, but wow, you know, like a, a national account specialist that specializes in non non commercial. Mm. Yes, let's go do that so that they can walk in. And have these conversations at the top to top level with these organizations and and then i'll be there as well and then we'll we'll start to really build that out yeah we might be looking to hire like a chain specialist because when you try to work with with local regional national chains it's really a full-time job for one person if not more uh maybe expanding into a broker network but the longer you wait to approach chains, the longer it takes, right? right? It's like they have menu cycles, they might be running an LTO or whatever, but if you don't start now, then you might be out of the rotation for a whole other year. Um, right. So we're looking at that. Right. We're, we're looking at continued growth in non-commercial. So what I what we've really done is we, we set our sights on three segments specifically. We set college and university, okay. BNI, and healthcare. Healthcare kind of fell by the wayside because we are having so much success in college and university. And we're testing in BNI. So, what I like to do is make sure you get out into some segments, get out into the world, and figure out what's going on. And then, once you see something that's working, go hammer it. So sure. that's what we did with college university. We're starting to do that with BNI. BNI is coming back um, very quickly, and so in a big way. Yeah, so we have an opportunity there. We're going to have another opportunity with healthcare, uh, and then and then randomly K through twelve. So in my past life, my products very interesting. Either- didn't exist. So Gardein, like when I talked to the school nutrition association, they're like, what is this? It doesn't fit yes. anywhere on inside, you know, it's not ketchup or whatever, right? As a vegetable. right?" Garden didn't really exist. There was no category. So it didn't fit within mm-hmm. the child nutrition labeling requirements back then. So Amazon was just too expensive. And people were like, why is it so expensive? I'm like, have you seen the person climb the tree in Brazil with a machete and cut the comb off and everything? And then they got to put it in a basket <laughs> that goes on a canoe to a boat. I'm like, just the supply chain alone makes it expensive. So, unfortunately, oh, absolutely. we're not in the business of nonprofit. So, the product was a little too expensive for K through 12. Turns out mm-hmm. that my mochi isn't too expensive for K through 12. And it's a good pre portioned snack, right? So, it's not something that's like massive and too many calories and all these things. It's just a 100 calorie ice cream ball with dough on it, right? And it's delicious, or as we say, disquishes. Um, and, disquishes. And, we were initially kind of dissuaded from going after K through twelve because we weren't what's called smart snack approved, and I am by no means an expert in any of this. I'm sure in your office you have somebody who is a K through twelve specialist that's probably been yeah, in the we industry. have a K twelve
0: team. Yeah. yeah,
1: they've probably been in the industry for about like twenty years to thirty years. That correct. They understand the bid process. I don't. I've never done it because my products didn't fit yeah. in. Well, now they do. So we started going to some of these shows, and some of the best shows we've been to in Texas. They allow the high school students to come in and vote for what they want. So shoot, Trey was down there, down in Texas, like a couple of weeks ago. He had a thousand individual samples, and he was out in an hour. So, guess what? They want a product. Crazy, yeah, oh and, yeah. And people are like, I don't care that it's not smart snack approved. We want to give the kids what they want. And by the way, right. it's easy. We don't have to scoop ice cream. It's it's you know pre portioned. It's small enough. Uh, and wait till we launch our next products, which are which are our smoothie. Bites. So basically, imagine the myotube okay. ice cream ball, but instead in the, in the center, it's a smoothie. And so, think about Ooh, how I that, love that, yeah. How and we're changing day parts. So now we're going from a, a, a midday to an afternoon snack to breakfast. So, and I think that's going to play out really well in K 12 So there's the whole idea of maximizing your opportunity with existing products, but then innovation. And so this innovation on this side is now getting mm-hmm. us into a whole nother, a whole other day part. Uh, Gardein, yeah. Gardein, the reason they were successful, innovation, even his team, they make great products. But I remember one day he went to Trader Joe's and he, and he asked them what their number one selling frozen entree was. And it was their orange chicken. He took the bag, took pictures of it, emailed it to his team. And within like three weeks, we had a Gardein orange chicken. That was phenomenal. But it's wow. that kind of innovation that really drives things forward. And so with my Mochi, yeah. the support on the on the equipment side, the the people side, the personnel side, but then all of a sudden this amazing innovation as well. And and who knows where we go from here. But I can tell you that these these smoothie bites are gonna go crazy out in this space, especially K twelve. So we're really excited about that.
0: You know, for on for a manufacturer, a lot of times they view new innovation maybe as it might be more profitable items, or you might have a customer already. You're trying to increase the amount of items that they buy from you, and so these new smoothie bites. they're you know, you're changing day parts. What are some? some strategies that you, or tactics that you use to introduce new innovation into the, into the market. You know, it can be expensive. And I think there's sometimes there's a lot of frustration on the manufacturing side where they have this great idea and maybe it falls short.
1: Yeah. And if you're a manufacturer and you're listening, um, (laughs) remember a couple of things. (laughs) One, if you make a great product and put it in a package, it doesn't mean it's ready to launch. Okay, yeah, just because exactly. it's manufactured and sitting in the warehouse actually doesn't, it means it's not ready to launch. You need the support behind it, and you need a strategy and a, and a way to launch this product. And then I'm talking about food service. In retail, it's a little bit more straightforward. Uh, but in food mm-hmm. service, you got to have a strategy in place. You got to have the tools in place. We were just on a, on a call today with my team going over a checklist of things that we need to figure out before we launch this product. Because we have it, it's ready to go. We can make it, but I need sell sheets. First of all, we need to decide what, what segments we want to go after as a team. Once we decide those segments, then it's like, okay, let's make sure that we've got our proper sell sheets. We've got our you know our blocking and tackling. We've got our sell sheets. We've got our presentations. Mm-hmm. Do we have our broker training set up? You know, because we need to go out and talk to them. You know, do we have? Uh, can we get product? Can we get? Can we get numbers from Dot? Can we get numbers mm-hmm. from? Can we get SUPCs set up at Cisco? Can we get APMs from US Foods so that we've got everything in play and we've got everything ready to go. So it's just really all that support that you need. And then think about from a marketing standpoint, okay, how are we going to merchandise this? Are we going to put it in the same freezers as our ice cream? Do we need signage? Now here, now, you know, try our new smoothie bites. There's that side of it. Are we going to invest in any media where we want to announce it to the trade? Um, are we going to pick a specific trade show to announce it to the trade? You know, whatever. So right. there's all these different things that you got to think about. And I think a lot of times manufacturers are like, here's the box. Go sell it. Yep. And it's like, yep. And I know you run into that as a as a, as a broker <laughs> we all do. the time. Yes. They're like, well, we got a box of stuff in it. Go sell it. And you're like, no. <laughs> That's, oh, and and let's not forget. Cool. Let's make sure we have the price. Like, what does it cost? Like, let's make sure we got a price sheet together. Specs. Yep. Spec sheet. Yep. So we can get all this stuff set up, and just making sure that you have all those basic things in place to start out. And for us, because we're ultimately going to comp- compete in a retail space, we need data that says you should buy this over mm-hmm. something else. Um, unfortunately, we have retail data, which helps us a lot. So, if we didn't have our our, our partners on the retail side, we wouldn't be able to do what we do. because you know yeah. in the food service industry, we don't get a lot of really good data.
0: Yeah, that's one thing that's uh, that's missing in our industry. You know it's we are very relationship driven, um, but I know in retail they have so many different or so much more information and data uh, as opposed to food service. And yeah. I think that goes a long way, you know, especially when you're trying to, yeah, introduce a, a, a new innovation or new product, you want to know, hey, where, you know, maybe what are the data points of being successful in, in this channel or that channel?
1: Oh, and then I also recommend that as a sales team, you try the product. You'd be surprised how often, like, somebody gets a product and they get ready to launch, and the team's like, I haven't even tried it yet. You yeah. launched it? <laughs> like, so it's right. Make sure they try the product and they get behind it as well. Now, I tried it and it's fantastic you know not that they needed my stamp of approval but it makes it a lot easier if it is <laughs> if it's there
0: totally i don't know if you're familiar with zig ziglar but he has uh, yes. in one of his books he tells a story of he was the number one sales person at a tupperware company and there was a struggling salesperson that said zig can you help me you know how do i get to your level and he said let me come over uh, to your house so he goes over to the house and he finds that the guy doesn't even have any of his of the tupperware in his own home he doesn't use it himself and he said how can you really believe in it so i think definitely trying the product and believing in it and using it at home and it really goes a long way it separates you know maybe the good from the great it's taking that one extra little step absolutely there are a lot of people out there that might be a regional sales manager or in some sort of mid-level management and they want to get to the next level. They want to become a director of food service, like you have have been, or a vice president of some sort. What is maybe a one nugget or two that you would say, or, or you would recommend to others? What is maybe some advice that you would give to somebody that wants to break through, cut through all the noise, and get to that next level?
1: Yeah, I think you need to you need to speak up. So, and you need to find an organization that is willing to develop you. Or develop talent. Sure. I think a lot of times with smaller startup companies, they don't have time to really develop talent. So they're trying to hire talent, and then that's kind of it. There's really nowhere for them to go. Um, so you've got to move either laterally or up outside the organization. Which which kind of stinks if you really like where you're working and there's nowhere for you to go. But it's having that conversation making sure that you you pick the right management team around you to say, hey, you know, like right. before I come work here, I want to see what my path looks like, my career path. And I don't know, I I, I wouldn't say that I've necessarily had that in my career, which is why I've moved from, a, you know, I spent probably about five or six years with the company and then I I've, I've moved on to right. somewhere else if there was no opportunity there. So, um, but that's, I think that's important. I also think in this could be difficult for people that are kind of midway through their career, but I like the balance of having a large corporate background from a Procter & Gamble. Even though I wasn't on the sales side, it was still just understanding how to structure things and how, you know, p is huge, but they still had really effective teams and they had clear plans to promotional paths and things like that. And so having that as some somewhere in your career, I think is a really good idea. And then whether or not you fit into that, I don't necessarily fit Mm -hmm. into that field but having that experience and then going to work somewhere small and recognizing you're not going to have those resources and then you've got to really go do everything yourself Um, but then it's so so it's it's that having that experience but then it's also just sitting and listening and learning and you know knowing as much as you can and the knowledge that you can that you can pull together and then remember that once you make the jump from like a regional salesperson to even a director and then into more of a vp role you probably aren't going to get to do the stuff you like as much anymore if you really like sales. So it's, it's, it's a challenge. I I still like, I still like getting on the road, but I have other responsibilities now. And so it's just really understanding, you know, do you want to, do you want to have to build the budget and do you want to have to focus on all those sorts of things, which is fine for me. I I like data and analysis and whatnot, but um, so I think all that combined, but it's, and then, you know, finding a mentor as you, as you talked about, you know, whether it's Mm -hmm. within your organization or outside your organization, uh, but just putting yourself out there and showing that you can do it, and and like if you read any of the uh, like management books and whatnot, it's doing the job that you want as opposed to doing the job that you're in, sort of thing. That stuff all—it's still true. I mean, there's no like magic bullet behind it. You know, if you're if you're acting at a level above
0: where you are, then you should be able to move up to that level. And then one day, when you look back on your career, what do you want to be remembered for? Oh, boy. Wow. Um, <laughs> this one's going to make you go deep here.
1: Yeah, seriously. Uh, honestly, it's it, all the products and everything else aside, uh, I want to be remembered for developing talent and really being there for my team and, and showing them and okay. helping them get to the next level and raise up. Um, I think in, in our in our industry, and you and I have talked about this, I'm young, so you're like really young. Um, right. And so <laughs> there wasn't a lot of like, there wasn't a lot of, I mean, for whatever reason, there wasn't a lot of younger people that kept coming into the pipeline. And so I want to take that younger talent, develop them into the next generation and and bring new ideas and fresh ideas and, and shake things up a little bit. And so ultimately, when I look back, I want people talking about me saying, hey, you know what? That guy really helped me out, gave me a leg up and really, you know, right. help me help my family and myself be successful. That that for me would be absolutely fantastic. I love that.
0: Thaddeus, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciate your time, and uh, I, I know we went longer than than we we expected, but I think there was just so many great nuggets in this conversation, and I, I can't thank you enough. If someone wanted to reach out to you or, or hear more, how would they get in contact with you?
1: Probably the best way is to hit me up on LinkedIn and just do a direct message. Um, I'm I'm on there okay. pretty frequently. Um, I won't I won't give out my personal phone number just yet.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't do that. (laughs) Thaddeus, thank you so much. Again, truly appreciate it.